I suspect that if we were to do a big population study, we'd find that maybe a quarter of people with eating disorders have mast cell and it hasn't been addressed. They've been gaslit in their somatic experience. And as a result, they lose faith that they can actually get better. We can do better as a field. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast. Today with Dr. G, endearingly called Dr. G, Jennifer Gaudiani, called in for her second conversation with us, only this time to talk about MCAS, Mast Cell Activation Syndrome, how to listen, how to treat the client first and chase down the science later. It's not, quote, just your eating disorder and the impact of malnutrition and stress on the body. So listen in today to hear some of the signs of MCAS. And if you're like me, you can probably think of several folks in your world this might be helpful for. Dr. G guesses about 25% of our clients with eating disorders and my rough math resonates. And in typical Dr. G style, there were several titles I wanted to name this. Gay Dragons and MCAS was one of them. And you'll listen in and hear, be able to laugh when we when she talks about that. I love her showing up with fierce joy for every session with our clients. And she's a medical doctor, right? So, and then the interesting, when she talks about her boundaries for work and life balance, at this point in my life totally resonates that sometimes suboptimal me is better than zero me. These, that was her quote. And setting those work-life balance to where we can show up as full as possible in the areas that matter. That's what's important. Our clients are what's important. Their healing is important and listening. So big. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the seasoned RD, Dr. G. It's such a delight to be here. I'm so pleased to join you again. We've been looking forward to this one for, I mean, I guess ever since we got you on our calendar again. So we'll ease you in with some new icebreakers. So my first one for you, you are hungry after dinner. Are you more likely to grab a sweet or salty snack? Oh, it depends on the night. I love both, but on the whole, I'm going to go sweet. I agree. Sounds great. And so my icebreaker is after um, quite a day, which you might likely have at the office, uh, what's your favorite way to unwind after work? Oh, my favorite way to unwind after work is to cuddle my daughters who mm. are 14 and 17 oh. over to sit with a YA fantasy novel 
frankly, having been a Harvard English major, pretty much the only thing I read in my spare time is YA fantasy. And interestingly enough, recently, it's specifically been YA queer fantasy. So go figure. Um, you know, it's not just dragons. The dragons are gay. <laughs> it's so good. Oh my gosh. Okay. And I want to say in response to Abby's question that just last night I finished work, it was maybe an hour and a half until dinner. And I do not limit myself to, you know, sweets after dinner. I was like, you know what I really need right now is an ice cream sandwich. So I just enjoyed a lovely ice cream sandwich as one of the appetizers that I enjoyed before dinner. And it satisfied me and got me all the way to the time when dinner was ready. Awesome. Okay. And speaking of ending work, what's your closing time? What's your strategy for closing time? We <sighs> know doctors have burnout and your out of office message is very clear. Are you able to hold those boundaries? Do you have a time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the only way that any of us can do good work and it takes privilege to be able to assert these is to hold boundaries because providers of all genders, but I would say, especially women providers have a lot of different roles that they play in their lives. And for us to be able to fully embody each one of those roles, depending on whether it's a time of the day or a day of the week, we have to be able to put aside other elements that we're passionate about in order to be fully present where we need to be now. Mm -hmm. And so I gratefully assert and my patients graciously accept the fact that I only answer emails between nine and five. Nobody has my cell phone. There is no evening cross coverage or weekend cross coverage. And it's not because my patients don't sometimes need us. They do but they know that the only way I can do this work and keep showing up with so much fierce joy for my patients is to really deeply refresh myself and recharge in ways that are meaningful to me. And that means boundaries. So it can be hard for my patients. And they also know that I couldn't exist as a clinician without them. So suboptimally available me is better than zero me is, is what we sort of end up deciding. Totally. Well, thank you for that. Okay, so what are you into lately? Well, I want you to tell all of our listeners, medical, therapy, dietitians, nutrition professionals, physical therapy professionals, like what do we need to know? What are you noticing in your practice in eating disorders? Well, first of all, I love that multidisciplinary list. This is such a richly delicious multidisciplinary field, and I adore and learn so much from my multidisciplinary colleagues. So yay, I love that those are your listeners. I will tell you something that is really exciting for me that I think has the potential to transform the field of eating disorders is a medical problem that is wildly underdiagnosed and wildly undermanaged but super common among everybody, but especially among our patients. And that's what I'm going to tell you guys about today. So this medical problem is called mast cell activation syndrome. I'm going to shorthand that as MCAS, M-C-A-S. 
So I'm just going to tell you an imagined case that's an amalgamation of, of various ones that I've seen, and I'll make it a little bit extreme so that, boy, is it is it really in your face. Certainly people present with much milder and many fewer symptoms than I'm going to share, but I just want to give enough that people are like, oh, because mm. whenever I lecture on this, I will invariably have someone come up to me afterwards or write me an email afterwards and be like, oh my gosh, Dr. G, I have this. My mom has this. My brother has this. My patient has this. So it's it's really exciting. Okay, here's here's an imagined case. I'm going to make it up as we go along. I have a 25-year-old patient who is a dietitian herself and she has struggled with some blend of either anorexia or ARFID for as long as she can remember. And she's in, she's in an, a decent place. She's holding on. She's, she's done a lot of really good recovery work, but it's a fight every day. And she says, you know, Dr. G, the thing that really tries to trip up my recovery is my digestive system is just so messed up. And every time I eat, I feel fluey, I feel sick. I just don't feel good. And my whole life, well-meaning clinicians have told me, oh, that's your eating disorder talking. That's your eating disorder talking. Once you're fully weight restored, once you're eating consistently, that's all going to go away. And she's like, you know, it hasn't. So I'm trying to take care of myself and protect my recovery. So I'm coming to you to talk about what could possibly be going on. So I asked her some questions and I, here's what she tells me is, is positive. I say, by any chance, do you react poorly to alcohol, whether it's the kind you consume or the kind you put on your hands. And she says, oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, I drank a little bit in college and I felt so terrible the day after. I felt depressed. I felt sick. I was, I was, I got hives that I just, I actually never drank alcohol as a result. And yeah, during COVID, my hands looked like hamburger meat. I mean, they were so red and cracked and the hand sanitizer really was unpleasant for them. And I say, okay, do you happen to feel more fatigued than your peers after being outside on a hot day or after sitting in a hot tub? And she goes, yeah, yeah, I feel much better in the winter and fall months when I'm in the summer, I just feel kind of brain foggy the whole time. And if I go hang out with friends outside or take a hike, my hands feel like sausages and I get swelling in my ankles and in my tummy as well. And I just feel beat. I have to go home and take a nap and they're ready to keep hanging out. Say, so, okay. Do you find that when you're exposed to scents, could be a scented candle, could be an organic, you know, shampoo, do you feel yucky? Oh yeah. No, I, I hate scents. I mean, I love them, but I, I can't stand them. I get a headache immediately and I feel stuffy and I just don't feel that great. Okay. Do you find that you're a rashy person? Yeah. Oh my gosh. My whole life. I've had these rashes that no doctors can understand. Sometimes it's just flushing on my chest and my neck. Like if I'm embarrassed or I'm about to go speak publicly, I'll kind of get flushed and a little bit itchy on my chest and neck. But honestly, I've had a couple of episodes where I was clearly having some kind of an allergic reaction, but I had no idea what I was exposed to. And I don't actually have any allergies, 
but I would get these, you know, juicy hives on my body and eventually they would just go away. And, you know, my, my doctors have had no idea what that was all about. Do you get a drippy nose after you eat? Oh yeah. Yep. Definitely. I mean, there's some foods that make it happen more, but I'm always dabbing my nose after I eat. Okay. Do you find that you don't feel really good during your period? Oh yeah. I have had the worst periods since I went through puberty. I mean, I bleed heavier. I have such bad cramps. My mood is like all over the place the week before and the week during my period. I feel awful. I would do anything to get rid of my period. And actually that was one of the things that really fueled my anorexia is that I didn't have a period for a while and it really felt a lot better. And another thing that just felt better when I was really in my eating disorder was that when I didn't eat or when I ate less or restrictively, I just didn't feel as crummy. Okay. Did you have chronic constipation as a kid? Oh yeah. My mom talked about how much of a fight that was my whole life. So these would be the kind of questions I'm going to ask. And with all of those positives, again, not all of them have to be positive. I'm going to say to her, I think you have this thing called mast cell activation syndrome. So here's what it is. All of us have mast cells in our bodies. They are a population of our white blood cells, our immune fighters, and they carry our histamine and up to a thousand other inflammatory mediators, which thank you very much should stay inside the cell unless you get a bug bite. And then, you know, locally you get a little welt. It turns out that somewhere between, and our data aren't great, but we're trying to get more, 15 to 20% of just the general population based on a genetic predisposition and then an environmental or life experience trigger ends up with mast cells that release their contents when they should not. So here are some typical situations. The genetic basis is, oh yeah, my mom always got rashy when she had any adhesive put on her and she was always fatigued during the summer. Or, oh yeah, when I draw a line down my skin, I have dermatographia, meaning you can see a little red line that follows my fingernail. And I tend to be kind of an itchy person. These might be family historical things that are kind of lingering in the background. And the environmental trigger is interesting. Some of it can sound a little bit orthorexic, but I stay as far away from that as humanly possible, as you all know, as a highly, highly anti-diet, positive, weight and inclusive person. But we have more and more scents and exposures to chemicals in our society and exposures to artificial dyes as well. So when you have somebody who has a genetic predisposition for mast cells that want to release, and they're increasingly exposed to tons and tons of these chemicals from youth onwards, they may just reach that threshold of exposure where their mast cells get reactive. Another super, super typical experience is, especially for those assigned female at birth, when they go through puberty and there's lots of estrogen around, mast cells have tons of estrogen and progesterone receptors on them. And so that can sort of set this aflame hmm, right at the time that a lot of eating disorders start. Interesting. And a very big sickness or life stressor or grief reaction can be enough to kind of light up your mast cells for the first time as well. So what a lot of people say is, 
I had a few little symptoms before I hit puberty, but after my first period, I just started feeling generally unwell. And I kind of lost a little bit of confidence in my body. And I started feeling gaslit by a medical system that kept looking at me and saying, you're fine. You're fine. I can't find anything wrong. You're fine. You just must be really sensitive. You just must be, you really kind of somatic. And that's, this is a you problem. Interestingly, mast cells are particularly prevalent, even though they're all through our body, they're particularly prevalent at the intersection between the environment and our body. So eyes, mouth, digestive tract, skin, vagina, these are all places where people may have particularly visible or or symptomatic symptoms. And what happens typically is that, and I've now seen this in so many of my patients, is people become quote unquote allergic, but not in the traditional way, not in an anaphylactic way, usually to benign life exposures. So, you know, they walk through the perfume department in the department store as they're heading to buy some clothing and their stomach starts to hurt and their head hurts and they just feel lousy. And for people with mild versions of this, they might only feel lousy for the time that they're in the the, the department store. For other people, they're going to feel lousy maybe for two or three days. So the, the reality is that even food, and I just mean plain old everyday food, not a specific trigger, can start to trigger mast cells. So that every time they eat, they feel sort of feverish and yucky, maybe sweaty, maybe they're feeling cold or hot and their tummy hurts. They feel yucky and fatigued and they want to go lie down. Their skin might feel itchy. Well, guess what? That's negative conditioning. We know that in all of the psychological studies, negative conditioning, when an action happens and an animal gets a negative response that's painful or unpleasant, they begin to avoid the trigger. This is mammal brains at work here. So these lovely humans who have vaguely felt unwell each time they eat, perhaps even without recognizing what they're doing, start not being that interested in food because when they eat less, they don't feel so crummy. And we know that one of the great predecessors to almost any eating disorder is restrictive eating and sometimes weight loss, because we know that not all restrictive eating comes with weight loss. And so, you know, then it's so easy to slide down that rabbit hole where they're eating less, maybe their weight goes down, the rest of society throws them a huge party because we're so sick in our society, in our fat phobia about the, the power of weight loss. And so someone's anorexia can be born from that. Somebody's ARFID can be born from that, where there's no sort of focus on, on actual desire for body change or, or body distortion. So what we say to this wonderful dietitian who's in the office, who's like, okay, Dr. G, I, it sounds like I might have this. How do we diagnose it? How do we know for sure? And the answer is it's complicated. There are two schools of thought with regards to MCAS. The consensus one doctors, primarily these are doctors, believe that only if you have certain specific blood tests can you be diagnosed with MCAS. And I'm not one of those doctors, surprisingly enough. The consensus two docs feel that that may miss 85% of patients with mast cell. 
Because actually, when even when you draw the right tests at the right time, if you don't perfectly refrigerate them and use a refrigerated centrifuge and have the right lab, you can get a negative result. And even when you have someone who has classic, florid, well-diagnosed mast cell, you could take an entire battery of super expensive tests three times and maybe have one marker pop up out of all of the three. So it's very hard to capture on blood tests. You want to, ideally, at some point, if possible, but you don't say, well, it's definitely not mast cell if your first round is negative and you don't have to test to make a clinical diagnosis. On the whole, if you have five or more organ systems that are involved, and I will give to you all an unvalidated mini screener and Gaudioni Clinic mast cell questionnaire that I've created that isn't meant to diagnose. It's just meant to educate and to follow patients' prevalence of symptoms and severity of symptoms over time. So it's useful. It's a start. I've just begun using it myself. But when I have the patients do the MCAS questionnaire and they have more than five organ systems involved and I try them on meds and we'll get to treatment in a second and they feel better, I'm not going to be a Western medicine stick in the mud and be like, well, unless your tryptase is up, this isn't real. I'm going to say, it sounds like you got something going on with your mast cells. This is why we love you, Dr. G. (laughs) It's so sweet. So let's try to treat you and make you feel better. And then we'll chase down the science later, you know, because there's clearly something going on. The great news about treating these is that the initial treatments are over the counter. People listening to this today could be like, oh, shoot, I think I have this. And they can go out to the grocery store or the pharmacy and pick up something and start treating. So let's talk about treatment. First of all, trigger avoidance is king. Now, for someone with mast cell, they may have triggers that are always there, like for instance, alcohol. It's a classic thing to feel you're allergic to alcohol when you have mast cell. And they may have triggers that come and go. So if you've just gone through final exams and you're stressed as can be, and you're underslept, and you find that suddenly eating gluten gives you a really bad tummy ache. But two weeks later, after you've been on break, and you've gotten good sleep, you can eat gluten, no problem. Needless to say, this can break the brains of eating disorder dietitians who totally feel that if somebody claims they have sort of fluctuating reactions to things, they're like, oh, this has to be your eating disorder. But here's where we have to listen to our patients. We just, we have to do better at not coming in full of power and being like, I know eating disorders because the patient is the expert in their own body. So if the patient says, oh, shoot, I'm in one of those times when gluten's making my stomach hurt, you say, okay, well, you live in a time where there happen to be a lot of gluten-free substitutes here. So this is not gonna be a carb-free time, but okay, you know your body best, go gluten-free for a couple of weeks. And then when you're ready to resume it and you feel like you might tolerate it, let's do that. But classic triggers to avoid are artificial scents, So we want to go all unscented shampoo, conditioner, lotion, detergent, dishwasher detergent, cleaning supplies. We really want to get artificial scents out of the environment. Almost always alcohol is a no-no. I've got a few patients who are like, yeah, I can have a glass of wine and I feel okay. We want to try to reduce stress. 
I have seen patients have a radical response when they get out of an abusive relationship. They needed seven medicines for their mast cell, and now they need three. Remarkably attuned to stress. I wouldn't be surprised if some of what we have called somatic symptom disorder over the years actually is patients who have mast cell. And of course, they have polysystemic symptoms because high stress, high psychological anxiety brings out physical symptoms. So that's just sort of an interesting off off thought. But other classic things to avoid, and, and again, this is the one that sounds orthorexic, is artificial dyes. It turns out that FDNC dyes really don't make mast cells happy. And so interestingly, there's a lot of patients who have the overlap of mast cell and POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And if they've got both, their POTS will not get better until their mast cell is addressed. But these sweet, you know, brave patients are like, well, I'm doing what my team says and I'm drinking Gatorade all day for my POTS and it's blue Gatorade. So they're not getting better. You know, it is fine for people to eat all the good things, all the candies they want, all of the, you know, sports drinks. It just has to be naturally dyed, not FDNC dyed. One of my patients once said, oh, this explains why I can eat a bar of chocolate. But when I eat M&Ms, I get really flushed and itchy. So really, really interesting how people start. And they wouldn't say this to a provider because they don't even think of it as a pathology. They're just like, oh, there's a quirk. You know, why would I ever think to mention this? So avoiding triggers and certainly malnutrition stress at any body size is a huge stressor on the body and will continue to fuel MCAS. So recovery work is key. And it's a matter for a time of a period of time of avoiding foods that make you feel like crap. And that may mean you have a pretty narrow set of things you can tolerate. There are elemental shakes you can supplement with calorically. And certainly nothing I'm talking about, I have any financial interest in. But over time, the goal with treatment is to broaden what someone can eat and tolerate. And they just may need to eat high quantities of boring foods for a period of time until they get better. Okay, so treatments. Besides trigger avoidance, the first things that we do, and sometimes this is enough, is H1 and H2 blockers. So what are those? These are histamine blockers at two different receptors, and they are available over the counter. The H1 blockers are your non-drowsy anti-allergy medicines. They're your Zyrtec, Claritin, Zizol, Allegra. Because artificial dyes matter, trying to find medications that are white and not colorful matter too. And there's there's a big literature on and it's more sophisticated than we'll get in this initial talk of, of patients who may react literally to changes in the stuff that's put around their medication. So, you know, their birth control that they've been on for six months changes manufacturer because CVS got a different brand in and this one is pink and suddenly they're super sick. And it's literally like a change in generic med can cause this to be an issue. But as far as which H1 blocker to pick, every patient's going to find that they have their preferred one. So if they have the financial means, you take one of them typically twice daily. Doses are much higher than in standard allergy treatment. So even if it's like 24 hour, you take one of them twice daily. On sick days, you can take up to two twice daily for two weeks. And then they try a different brand and they'll be like, oh, you know what? I'm a Zizel girl. Oh, you know what? Claritin works best for me. So you take high doses of that. And then H2 blocker is Pepsid. 
it's just, you know, the antacid pepsid, famotidine. And you find white colored famotidine, the brand does not matter. And you take that twice a day too. I get patients up to 40 milligrams of famotidine twice a day. If your doctor will prescribe it, because it can get expensive over the counter, that's even better because then it can count towards your deductible. But if you start with twice a day, H1 and H2 blockers, you're going to start making a difference in addition to trigger avoidance. And then I've written now four blogs, which we can link in the notes of this podcast too, about mast cell and eating disorders. And there is a whole amazing list of medications and natural supplements that help stabilize mast cells and help reduce reaction. And what I'll finish this super, super long conversation with is that it takes patience. It takes communication and frequent follow-up. It takes compassion for your body, knowing that, you know, you felt amazing last month and suddenly this month you feel crappy again. And that's so frustrating because you're kind of traumatized by feeling sick again. We have to take the long view of this. And I have seen so many patients enter into meaningful eating disorder recovery because of concurrent mast cell treatment, because now they feel more functional. Their POTS is under control. They don't feel terrible after they eat. Uncontrolled mast cell can drive Ehlers-Danlos syndrome because all of those little inflammatory markers that are released all the time nibble away at the connective tissue and can cause droopy viscera and joints that end up getting too stretchy, et cetera. So there are so many things that revolve around mast cell. And even today, a ton of doctors don't believe in it. Well, it's not real. Oh, they don't have a tryptase. And what I say is like, I now have taken care of dozens of patients with this. It can be very hard to control in some, it can be easy to control in others, but it makes such a difference. And if we're talking about improving survival and quality of life and recovery rates in people with eating disorders, I suspect that if we were to do a big population study, we'd find that maybe a quarter of people with eating disorders have mast cell and it hasn't been addressed They've been gaslit in their somatic experience. And as a result, they lose faith that they can actually get better. We can do better as a field. Huge. Okay. So you had mentioned, uh, you know, as you were talking, I'm thinking of two hands of people who I could apply this to. I also texted one of my friends and I said, I I think you're going to want to listen to this episode. Because she's invested in in seeing a special pharmacist for, and they're doing all kinds of things. So what are the side effects of these high-level H1, H2 blockers or Pepsid that we would want to be aware of? I love that question. And it's super relevant. The most common adverse effects for both of those are a dry mouth and some constipation. So for some people, it's no biggie or they tolerate them fine. And for other people, it's a real biggie. And we have to go back to daily dosing and add other medications. As you'll see in the blogs, there's a prescription medicine called chromalin that is a a mast cell stabilizer that actually helps promote forward GI movement as do some of the other medications that we prescribe, including compounded low-dose medications. And so oftentimes if we're giving both, they can balance each other out. 
And they may uh, already be having constipation. So it's not like you're adding to it. Exactly. And even if you are, we can balance it out with other medications and, and patients say like, geez, you know, I will take a little dry mouth in exchange for actually feeling well in my body. Huge. I have a client with POTS and she was telling me that she can do egg, like scrambled eggs, but not the egg white. And these are some different things. And and she actually ended up with uh, driving along and had a, a almost a anaphylactic kind of reaction. Is that you're shaking your head? Yes. That yep. can be. A number of patients have unexplained anaphylaxis. To the point where doctors will sometimes accuse these patients of Munchausen or if it's a child by proxy, yeah, who could possibly anaphylax just sitting in an ICU bed? Surely they're slipping themselves something to get this reaction. Oh, come on. You're washing their, their IV site with alcohol. Right. Just came and cleaned with bleach. And so they are sicker, you know, but this she has a EDS also, Ehlers-Danlos. So, and then part of what you said is patience and communication. I think that's what we as eating disorder dietitians can really do is hold that space for, you know, all of this list of the things that they can do. Reducing stress is so hard because you're stressed about your physical condition. You're stressed about being gaslit. You're stressed about your eating disorder. And then having to look at all the labels and the artificial dyes and to make sure this and that. So it's a, I kind of picture it as ushering our clients in and and being with them through the ups and downs. That's so beautiful. And I do think that as EDRDs become what probably needs to be the first line of screening for mast cell, because you know the doctors aren't going to do it. (laughs) The doctors continue to disappoint us. But EDRDs really can be the first line and they're welcome to use my mini screener. They're welcome to use the GCMCAS questionnaire just to see like, could this be happening? And if so, well, try an H1H2 until we can convince a prescriber in your life to, to try some of the other stuff as well. Because one of the things that while a mast cell diagnosis can indeed be stressful because you're like, oh my gosh, I have to be vigilant for so many things and I just right. want to live my life. Nonetheless, if you've been suffering and you're a mystery, it's yeah. extremely stressful as opposed to suffering and being known. And so when I tell my patients, you are not a mystery to me. I, this makes sense to me. Your story makes sense to me. There is this wash of relief that comes over them. I, I think that's going to be the title of this episode, honestly, is to be known and not be a mystery. Because even if we don't know, because we can't know everything, that's what this podcast is about too. We can't know if our words are going to land on their ears and their nervous system in a way that we can possibly predict, but we can be there with them and listen and, and witness. And I like when my client said something about the egg white for hard boiled eggs versus scrambled eggs, and, and it doesn't happen all the time. Then I reached out to other dietitians and somebody pulled something saying the sulfur reaction with a hard boiled egg is different. So that, you know, it's really just saying whether or not this is the actual 
reason in that moment. It could be a variety of things, like you said, with the sense or the stress or the artificial dyes, but they're heard, they're seen. And we're just trying to uncover each stone. I always tell my clients, we don't know everything. We're just going to keep uncovering it. Don't worry. Keep throwing stuff at me, whatever your experience is. I love that. I think that when we can tell patients, especially those who've been failed by a system who deemed them too complex, too difficult, too mysterious, too refractory, when we say, I'm not going anywhere, mm-hmm. I'm going to walk alongside you. Yeah. And even when I have no idea what to do next, I'm here to keep listening to what you experience because the loneliness of suffering when you can't share what it is freely, as many can't because their family members feel worried and scared and anxious and or angry when they keep having, you know, intrusive symptoms, which you can say is, tell me about it. I just, I want to hear, I want to witness you. And I'm going to keep thinking because who knows if next week, I'm not going to learn something that's going to make this better. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, we usually have a wrap-up question, and I wish, look, we talked before we hit record about a hundred different things that we'd like to pick Dr. G's brain about, but you have your medical minutes out there for people. One of my favorite things, I don't think it's a medical minute, but that you did this in a conference that was virtual was ravenous hunger, and you love talking about ravenous hunger. I share that with with supervisees and clients, some of the things that you've taught me, because the MCAS is, is this emerging thing, is that the narrative medicine is important and listening and not gaslighting. So for example, it doesn't have to be evidence-based practice. You're totally throwing out the idea that there's this unvalidated screener but it's practice-based evidence. Really, your people are being seen and heard. And I, I borrowed that from Beth McGilley and Margot Main. They talk about practice-based evidence. So another thing that has been super helpful for me as an EDRD that's, is the walk across the room screen. Like it's a screen. It's not a diagnostic criteria. Dietitians can't diagnose eating disorders anyway. And who cares? We can diagnose malnutrition and we see that in all body sizes. With this MCAS, it just, I think that our listeners are going to listen over and over again to get the nuances of what you have said, because it's just going to help us tune in when a client says something and it's like, huh, okay, huh. And then we're going to have in the show notes, your question, your questionnaire, not validated. So, you know, you could, I will lose a debate with anybody because I'm not into the weeds of the research, but I can tell you I'm in tuned with my clients and you've taught me that in so many ways. And I think this is, I mean, learning about MCAS is great in general. I've never heard of this before, but just as a reminder for us newer practitioners as well, like I can, you know, count countless times, how many patients have said like, oh, I get a weird symptom from this or from that. And it might not even be MCAS related, but to just not brush those things off, like just look into it and express that you're there for them and can help them and we'll figure it out and kind of, but it, I mean, those things are easy to just be like, okay, well, I don't know, you know, like this isn't the big topic kind of deal, but those things are important to them. So this is a, a great reminder. I would like to ask about, because of 
the work I do with women, higher sensitivity to alcohol because of um, the enzymes to process alcohol and the disruption of sleep. And But then again, alcohol is used as stress reliever. So it's a really vicious cycle. So I usually say, listen, let's give this a time-limited trial, two weeks, let's get the alcohol out. Let's just experiment with this. So they seem to really you know, find that fine because alcohol is so embedded in their social life. So how do you find that helps? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful construct. I think a time-limited trial can be applied to so many elements of eating disorder care because it's just less intimidating than mm-hmm. agree never to do this again. You're like, oh my yep. gosh, I can't do that right now. But two weeks, okay, I could try do two weeks. So yeah, I, I use that in a lot of different settings. And I think that the, the reality is the data are coming out stronger and stronger that alcohol is not great for us. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know, less than what we were taught, you know, oh, one drink a day for people who were assigned female at birth and maybe two a day for people assigned male at birth because of the way that the liver processes it. And it turns out probably to be too much for health. Now, there's a lot of reasons that people drink and I'm always a fan of the concept of moderation. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever possible, moderation wins. But I think on the whole, when my patients, certainly with MCAS, stop drinking, they're like, oh, this makes a huge difference, a huge difference. Some of my patients realize that when they were in college or grad school and they would, you know, go out on a Saturday night, Sunday and Monday, they felt almost suicidally depressed mm-hmm. and they thought it was a case of the Mondays, mm-hmm. but it turns out it's mast cell on the brain. So these are such interesting connections. And I just sit in eternal humbleness and fascination with, you know, I think I know a bunch of things. And then I'm like, holy smokes, not even a new chapter. An entire book has just opened in front of me. Right. I need to learn so much more. Yeah. And with literally, we know physiologically the alcohol, we use it for relaxation, but it does that for maybe 10 to 20 minutes and then it's the opposite. So it's it's really feeling that and understanding that in an intuitive way, listening. So if we are wanting to learn more about MCAS, it sounds like your blog would be a great place to go to. Are there any other resources you would recommend? You know, there's a very dense but very good book by Dr. Larry Afrin, Lawrence Afrin, about mast cell. If you go on, it's it's something about Occam's razor, but if you go on Amazon, you type in Afrin mast cell, it'll come up. That's really for people who want to deep nerd into it. I think that it's a it's a word to the wise. There are a lot of mast cell, you know, sites and groups and blogs, and a lot of them get diety because there hasn't been enough of an overlap of eating disorder world with its increasingly anti-diet focus and mast cell world. So in the past, because Western doctors were such failures at this, you know, people would end up going to naturopaths who are wonderful and can have a tendency to demonize sugar or, you know, various other things. And so I don't want patients to get thrown off by just Googling mast cell and ending up down a rabbit hole where they're like, oh, what do I do next? This really sounds like my eating disorder voice. So, you know, I would stick with 
the four blogs and, and the questionnaire, because the questionnaire itself is a great teaching tool. Oh, I didn't know that symptom was associated with it. For instance, people who take an airplane flight may feel fluish for three days after flying if they have mast cell. Who would think that that could be linked to a, a you know runny nose after eating? So I think that I'm trying to continue to think about how to generate data. There may at some point be an evidence-based paper, but I'm so much better at writing for the people than I am writing academically. And so it's definitely <laughs> yeah, it might be cool. the moment. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. G. It has been a delight. Thank you for giving me a window into people's minds and hearts about this diagnosis that I think really can be a game changer since I spend all of my time thinking, how can we make recovery better? How can we make people with eating disorders lives better? I think this may be a real linchpin. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.